0: You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org.
1: Hi, well, I wanted to start today by asking you to do a thought experiment, which a colleague of mine at the University of Oxford, Stuart White, invited his readers to do in 2003 in his book, The Civic Minimum, when he wrote the following, imagine that the state owns some proportion of shares that are traded on the stock market. And that each year, the state earns a return on its various shareholdings. The combined returns on these holdings are then merged and used to finance a range of public projects. Sounds like a great idea. He wasn't the only one to think about it. So Gerald Holtham, another UK thinker, a few years before that, in political quarterly in 1999, undertook a similar thought experiment. He invited his readers to imagine the consequences of having a national patrimony of, say, £50 billion invested in equities. At a rate of return of 6%, that would allow 3% each year to be devoted to health expenditure, while the fund could continue to grow at 3%. These kind of idealistic or aspirational sentiments uh, weren't the first of their kind. In fact, uh, they'd been around in some form or other for at least 200 years. We can trace the first one to that uh, familiar figure, Adam Smith, the grandfather of classical economics. In his 1776 tome, The Wealth of Nations, he identified two different sources of funding for the state, the first of which he described as some fund which peculiarly belongs to the sovereign or commonwealth and which is independent of the revenue of the people. And the second would be the revenue of the people. So that's taxation, anything that individuals, households, corporations are are paying in the form of tax. Sadly, Adam Smith, despite the uh, proliferation of his text this particular idea of his didn't seem to get much traction. And it's uh, almost 200 years until we start to see anything like this idea again cropping up in the thinking of economists or philosophers. The first sort of evidence we can find of it is in the writings of Nobel Prize-winning economist James Mead, another Brit, uh, who in a work in 1964 decided that it would be a really good idea if governments could actually become owners of and investors in capital. For Mead, he wanted to see this fund seeded by large budget surpluses that could then be saved up over time and they could be cascaded over generations. But it would certainly help allow government to expose itself to what he foresaw as the increasing share of national income that was going to go to profits rather than labour. And for Mead, he thought this could be great because you could use it not only for health and education expenditure but also, crucially, for a citizen's income, an idea that started to get more traction... Uh, in, uh, in the UK and around the world at the moment. But also, like Smith, sadly for Meade, no one really picked up on this idea until uh, Gerald Holtham, the person who I mentioned a moment ago, was one of the, the writers that aspirationally imagined this in the late 90s. He picked up on Mead's writing and uh, thought this was a really good idea and called it a community fund around the late 90s. But this time, when Holtham was writing... We weren't in an era of large budget surpluses anymore. So he dropped that part of Mead's plan and said, hang on, why don't we try and seed such a fund with privatisation receipts or maybe taxes on capital? Again, we could use it for spending on healthcare and education um, to provide an additional source of revenue for the state. Uh, And this became particularly important for Holtham writing at the time because he pointed out that actually these (coughs) expenses were starting to grow faster than GDP. So we couldn't just rely on growth to help fund that. Like me, though, he also pointed to the fact that um, now, very much in the 90s, profits were a larger share of national income and so it was crucial that the state try to get some exposure to that growth in profits and it could be used to fund things like health and education, anything where he said uh, wasn't a disputed claim of collective consumption. But for those of you who are very excited about a thing called sovereign wealth funds like I am, you might say, hang on a second, these... Thinkers are writing around a time that we know at least 20 or so government investment funds exist in the world. So by the end of the 20th century, we have at least 20 or so of these things called government owned uh, investment funds. They haven't been given the term sovereign wealth fund yet, but they certainly exist. They invest in a wide range of public assets, bonds and equities and alternative assets And as of today, we've seen nearly 80 around the world established. So they're a phenomenon. Why haven't we noticed them? Come back to that. They are uh, financed by a number of different sources around the world. Of the 80 that we see in existence... Uh, We've seen a lot established by commodity export revenues, so they're often thought of as natural resource or commodity funds. But we've also seen a whole host of the funds set up in countries where there's a large surplus of foreign exchange reserves sitting in central banks. So these funds typically sit in the East Asian economies. And then others dotted around the world that have been established with privatisation proceeds or fiscal or balance of uh, payments surplus. So they're, they're quite varied in terms of their sources, They've moved beyond that initial conception of Smith's uh, where he said mainly these funds will actually just be set up by land and, and, and stock profits. So we've, we've come a little bit more beyond that, a bit more sophisticated in terms of their funding sources. Are they a new entity? Is that why we hadn't noticed them and all these thinkers kept writing as if they weren't around? Well, not really Uh, This graph shows they're certainly new in terms of their explosion and their proliferation around the world. So you can see in the 2000s we've had the biggest establishment wave and there's a promising establishment wave continuing on now in this second decade. But, as I mentioned, there were 20 or so already set up in the 20th century when Mead and Holtham were writing. And even prior to that we already had a few of these funds set up in uh, the 19th century. So the first is largely considered to be one that was set up in France in 1816 after Napoleon had raided the public coffers and French Parliament decided it was probably a good idea to set up some body of public finances that the sovereign couldn't just deplete at will. So that's the first of this kind that we know of. And then about half a century later, Texas gets into the game and sets up two funds that exist to this day, Uh, both actually dedicated to subsidising and funding higher education and secondary education in Texas. So so we have a couple of these funds existing in the 1800s. We get a a new wave of them in the the second half of the 20th century, and now they're really taking off uh, in the 21st century. So they're not a new concept, but people didn't notice them. And perhaps that's because, as this graph shows... The term sovereign wealth fund was only coined in 2005 um, by a man called Andrew Razanov in an, an article he wrote in Central Banking Journal. So they, they now get a label. They've, they're an actual thing. Fast forward a few years and they're starting to become a really quite big deal on the international scene. So around the time of financial crisis, there's a lot of these funds now set up, people realise, hang on, there's, there's these huge pots of wealth that governments own Uh, they could be quite handy in the event of um, global financial meltdown uh, or, you know, national bailouts when we need a funding source. So people started to think that this is quite an exciting development. At the same time as they were really quite scared by these funds because they're government-owned and a lot of them sat in parts of the world where we weren't quite sure in the West, say, that the mores of the sponsoring government were the same as ours. So some of the major funds in the Middle East and China... Uh, who incidentally were also some of the, the, the largest funds, started to look at investing in the US and England. And this posed a little bit of a threat. What did it mean if a Chinese-sponsored fund or an Abu Dhabi-sponsored fund wanted to buy a major piece of, of national infrastructure? So there was a flurry of activity. The funds themselves decided they needed to get on the front foot and say, look, you don't have to be afraid of us. We've got lots of money, but we're here to help. Um, And just to reassure you, we'll develop a set of regulatory principles, and they're called the Santiago Principles because they were drafted in in Chile, in Santiago. Those principles uh, largely focus on the fund's international footprint, how they are operating in, in global capital markets, uh, but they've, they've served to be a really useful blueprint to help guide the behaviour and design of, of sovereign funds. And there's now a number of um, funds that want to see those um, Santiago, Santiago principles embraced and, um, and proliferated around the sovereign fund community. So they've set up a permanent forum called the International Forum of Sovereign Wealth <laughs> Funds, whose headquarters is now in London, just moved here two years ago. So sovereign funds are here to stay. They've got an international body. They've got these regulatory principles. And as you can see on the... The chart here in this slide, uh, they're very much considered their own investor class now alongside private equity and hedge funds, insurance companies, central bank reserves. They're they're on the map. So we conclude, they're not new, but their prominence and rapid proliferation as a policy tool of the contemporary state is new. And they're going to keep growing. We've seen three established this year. uh, or at the announcement of their establishment this year in Turkey, Saudi Arabia and Hong Kong. And a number of countries in in previous years have also said they'd like to set this up. Um, Interestingly, in the list here, I think I'd just draw attention to Israel's citizen fund because I think this is a a promising shift in the language around these funds to to get the word citizen into the title of of these funds. Right, so we've got all these funds um, and we had this great idea about community funds that these thinkers mentioned Uh, philosophers and economists that I I mentioned a moment ago. Is anyone connecting these ideas? Um, Well, apart from myself, I'm happy to report that uh, a couple of other uh, far more eminent thinkers have done this. And uh, one of those is Tony Atkinson, uh, known as the godfather of inequality research. In his book, uh, Inequality, What Can Be Done, he had a manifesto of 15 proposals of how to tackle inequality. And one of those was that, we should create a public investment authority to operate a sovereign wealth fund that aims to build up the net worth of the state by holding investments in companies and in property. Another thinker, again, a Brit, Stuart Lansley, wrote in his book A Sharing Economy that we should establish social wealth funds. Quite clever, just to change what the S stands for in sovereign wealth funds. Uh, Stuart's proposal was very much focused on how to tackle... Um, inequality and so he thought that the seeding for these funds should actually come from levying existing uh, fees on shareholdings or actually asking companies to dilute their current um, shareholdings by issuing new shares and spreading the ownership of of capital um, further beyond what it currently is to try to minimise that concentration of of ownership of, of private capital. Okay, so what's the problem then? There's a couple of us around talking about this. We're connecting the ideas, the the institutional development of sovereign wealth funds with this history of the community fund idea. Well, the problem for me, though, is that still hasn't gone far enough in realising the very promising potential of sovereign funds for their domestic sponsor communities. And when you do a domestic level analysis of sovereign funds, how they can both help and hinder the goals of their sponsoring communities a number of interesting things are showing up. A crucial one of these is that there's a lot of confusion about whose wealth actually is sovereign wealth, who ultimately owns the assets in these funds. This map here just gives you a snapshot sense of the number of communities and regions that have experienced some sort of conflict or contestation or at the very least some sort of ambiguity around the idea of of who actually has the ultimate trumping claim to the assets in these funds. It's not restricted to any particular polity or any particular type of economy or any particular sort of social community. It's in all different hues of society. Uh, As we can see here, both prosperous and democratic hosts like Australia, New Zealand, Norway, Alaska and Ireland have all experienced some type of tension between their their government and and citizens over who owns these assets. And emerging markets and mixed regimes have also um, suffered from this sort of conflict. Nigeria, Libya, China, Mongolia and Chile, just to name a few. I wanted to pull out one example just to highlight the sort of nature of this conflict, and I'm going to um, talk about Alaska as that example. Not only because it's in a fairly prosperous and, and democratic, well, uh, it is fairly prosperous and democratic uh, society, uh, but also because it's a, a really interesting case that brings out very clearly the tension that can exist between government and citizen over these assets. Alaska, as you might know, is currently face- facing a huge fiscal deficit of about Five billion in its state budget. It's uh, three billion in deficit. It's got a sovereign wealth fund that it established in 1976 with uh, proceeds from its oil revenues. That oil is starting to run out, so production's slowing. And very inconveniently for Alaska, uh, oil prices crashed a couple of years ago. So they've experienced an 88% drop in income from 2012 to 2016. So the governor has turned around and said, hang on a second, there's this huge sovereign wealth fund with over $50 billion in assets and a nice steady stream of returns. Maybe that could be our financing source for government. The only problem for the governor is that every year since 1982, the Alaskan Sovereign Wealth Fund has paid out an individual cheque to every single citizen for a per capita share of the returns of the fund. So there's a strong view in Alaska that all Alaskan citizens collectively own and share their natural resource assets and the wealth in their fund. So they should get a share in the proceeds of that fund. And they literally get a cheque. I mean, literally they are posted a cheque. In the last couple of years, it's um, varied between 1000 to $2,000 per person. Governor Bill Walker, the go- current governor, wants to halve that cheque this year. So that's led to a little bit of ire amongst the citizens of Alaska. And I'm just going to play you a short video now uh, to give you a sense of that conflict. ...next year, and the group that's showing up at the Park strip this afternoon isn't happy about it. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> yeah! For a Saturday afternoon during the summer, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. This is a pretty good crowd. Anytime you can get five people out in the summertime to do something besides fishing camp, you're a winner. A crowd that, despite its size,
0: was very clear about its message. The legislature has done nothing but be wasteful stewards of the people's money.
1: It has nothing to do with me personally getting a, a, a permanent fund dividend. It has to do solely with their um, childish behavior in the way that they have spent. I think that they're going about it the wrong way, and if they attempt to take it this particular way,
0: we will stop them cold.
1: That's Serenza Thigpen Jr. Here they come. He's a community activist who's lived in Alaska for more than two decades. This is Alaska. Alaska. My home. My home. My home. Well, Lorenzo is aware of the state's financial problem. He says taking PFD money from people who depend on it cuts their budget more, not mine. People like Kathy Porter of Wasilla. I can really use some point. <laughs> that means a lot to me. Is the wrong way to fix the state's fiscal trouble? We're not uh, a one-minded society. This is a rainbow community of thinkers
0: and developers. And, and for them to take this route means that they neglect
1: the other opportunities of fixing the problem. A problem that this group of Alaskans is willing to fight for. If we allow them to take this PFD now, The PFD will be gone forever. A possibility that has motivated dozens to stand on this street corner for hours, waving signs on a Saturday, encouraging lawmakers to leave the PFD (laughs) alone. This is our state, our revenue,
0: our way of doing things and our community, our backbone. And I'm not going to let anybody come and slice that. Senate Bill 128 faces an uncertain future. Many representatives, both Democrats and Republicans, have voiced concern and hesitation to pass the bill It will be the subject of discussion in Juneau next week. Nikki. All right, thanks, Blake.
1: So, <laughs> hopefully that gives you a sense of the sort of language that uh, can come up around these contests. And Alaska is a very passionate uh, community when it comes to these issues. But I think it's, it's really helpful in isolating how clearly people there distinguish between the state or the government's assets and their own uh, and there's strong resistance to the fact that the government would suddenly just start to tap uh, a funding source that is, um, is the underlying asset for uh, their share of collective wealth. So how do we resolve this conflict? Alaska's not alone, as I mentioned earlier. Lots of societies are experiencing this sort of um, contestation over their assets. Uh, I argue that we should have a a principal agent understanding of government uh, in which we, the people, are the principal. Government is our agent. I'm not coming up with this idea for myself. This is very much a Lockean uh, concept in political philosophy, but it's um, very apt when it comes to thinking about who owns the property of the state, Because a key part of um, principal-agent principles is that the agent can never own assets that it's managing on behalf of its principal for itself. It only is the steward um, or the custodian of those assets and it must manage them in a way that's solely in the interest of and benefit for its principal. So if we want sovereign wealth funds to um, operate like community funds, we want them to actually is, is, um, esp- or we want them to bestow the benefits on their sponsoring communities that we think they can, then we need to make sure that they don't just resemble sovereign funds, uh, don't just re- there's not just a resemblance between sovereign funds and community funds in, um, in form, but they actually function as such. And I had three areas that I wanted to target for reform to make sure that the behaviour of sovereign funds actually started to resemble what we might think of as citizens' wealth and, and community funds that hold the citizens' wealth. That's the management of the funds, who's actually controlling them, the investment of their assets, and the distribution of their returns. On the fund management side, uh, what this slide is, is trying to get at is there's a slightly complicated control dynamic when it comes to sovereign funds. They often sit outside the standard architecture of the state. So they're in independent authorities. Some of them are in central banks and treasuries, but often they're in their own entity. They don't always have the same levels of transparency and disclosure that a lot of our traditional um, agencies of state do. So how then do we make sure that actually citizens not only um, exert control over the government that is actually managing the fund and oversighting the fund, but potentially that they control the fund itself? Now, there's an extent, a debate around the extent to which we want to do this. Do we want citizens actually running the funds and sitting on the boards? Would we prefer just to have a referenda when we set the fund up and ask the citizens, what would you like the sovereign fund to invest in? What don't you want it to invest in? Do we want sort of regular citizen assemblies and juries to debate what our values are that could affect the fund's investments? There's a lot of different models around this, and some are more radically democratic than others. But I think that the core question when it comes to fund management is to look at how do we ensure citizens themselves and not just the government agent actually exerts a degree of influence over the funds. When it comes to the investment of their assets, a crucial issue here is that only three funds in the world, Norway, New Zealand, and surprisingly Papua New Guinea, have a responsible investment mandate. So a mandate that says you should actually invest assets in a way that the citizens of uh, the sponsoring community would consider align with their own values uh, and would be consistent with what the community would want. A number of um, communities have therefore experienced this sort of conflict I mentioned earlier because they don't have that kind of mandate. Uh, One of those is Australia, and um, the Australia Future Fund got into a bit of trouble a few years ago when it turned out that the fund held about $150 million in tobacco investments at the same time as Australia was trying to become the world leader in the fight against big tobacco. We became the first country to introduce plain packaging legislation. So a number of people thought that was rather inconsistent, that the government was this champion in the fight against tobacco, yet its main sovereign investment entity had quite substantial holdings in the industry. And uh, one of our senators at the time raised the question, um, mentioning that the future fund should be at arm's length from the government, but it's public money and it's a public institution. That fact alone obliges us to consider the implications of its actions. It should seek profits only in so far as they help balance the ledger. If we can't do that without causing harm in other countries, then how can we endorse this enterprise? They weren't alone. New Zealand uh, should be part of Australia, but uh, isn't. Uh, (laughs) Just across the way. Uh, Also had a very tense time uh, around some of its investments. Um, It had equity holdings in two mining companies that had operations in West Papua. Uh, and it turned out that there were some pretty nasty things going on uh, at these mining sites, uh, everything from environmental destruction to uh, quite harsh clampdowns on labour rights protests and degradation of the Indigenous community's culture. Uh, so much so that one of the world's other major sovereign wealth funds, the Norwegian government, uh, Global Pension Fund decided that it was going to divest from its holdings in those shares in 2006. After this, New Zealand acquired equity holdings in this, despite the evidence already being out there about this fund, not about this particular uh, company and its <coughs> operations not being uh, particularly scrupulous. New Zealand gained exposure to these equities through passive index investing, but nonetheless um, to these particular stocks. And... Um, Several years later, this became a source of much ire in the community. And uh, people questioned there this sovereign fund in New Zealand, it's aiming to build up a pot of wealth to help fund our public pension system, a universal pension system. Are we okay if it's funded in this way? Uh, That we seek (laughs) profits from something that's uh, clearly not good enough for the Norwegians? Why is it okay for, for the Kiwis? And this was despite the fact that New Zealand actually had in its investment mandate a commitment to be a responsible, Investor. So that raises really interesting questions about, well, in what way do you actually realize your obligation to be a responsible investor? In the case of the New Zealand sovereign wealth fund, the management there thought that they should actively engage with the companies that they held investments in. They were going to try and actually lobby to change their behavior the Norwegians decided that wasn't going to be possible and they wanted to divest. They didn't want any ethical exposure to those particular issues. So that's a really interesting question around how do we best shield citizens from ethical complicity in these sorts of activities. And finally, the last area that we could target is how sovereign funds actually distribute their returns... So there's a number of different models for this. You saw a debate in the video earlier about uh, cash dividend distribution, which happens in Alaska. That's a very direct form of distribution to citizens and it's obviously individualised there. Every citizen gets their own cheque. But there are also other models. Norway has an annual transfer from its sovereign fund back into the budget. So Norwegians argue we are actually distributing part of our returns to citizens because it's going back into the government budget every year and it's available for public spending. But It's happening really at the collective level. More indirect methods for this type of distribution are happening in Mongolia and the UAE. So Mongolia has also had a a large resource fund set up in the the past decade, and it has experimented with a number of in-kind transfers to its citizens, largely for um, health subsidies and, and education grants, mainly because Mongolian citizens, when asked in surveys, said they preferred this type of grant They're a largely cashless society. They didn't want a monetary handout. What they really wanted was help trying to meet the basic costs of living there. So, again, suggests that perhaps it's good to ask a particular community of citizens how they would like to benefit. Finally, in the UAE, one of the several sovereign funds that exists there has a mandate to invest domestically in funds that not only generate a commercial return, but that also deliver a social and economic return for the citizens of the emirate. Uh, That fund, Mubadala, has invested in a whole range of different um, infrastructure projects on the ground, including setting up uh, university campuses. So this is another way that we could consider that community benefit is transferred from a sovereign fund to its citizens. So all of this maybe sounds good, but a lot of people at this point tend to say, well, that's great, except in the UK and in lots of countries, we still don't have a fund. Uh, Global commodity prices have crashed. The economy is slowing down. um, China's cooling off, so we're all doomed. Um, How do we fund this sort of thing if we do want to set it up? And Holtham's quote from 20 or so years earlier made it all sound so easy. All we need to do is have a big pot of equities, and so long as profits go on rising as a share of GDP all the government has to do is clip the coupons. Uh, But at this point in history, uh, in an age of very low yields, um, negative interest rates on number of sovereign bonds, uh, and a very volatile stock market, it's not so obvious that that would work as a financing source. But don't despair. Uh, There are (laughs) options. So um, we have several proposals on the table in the UK that have been debated in the last few years. Uh, One of them was proposed by Boris Johnson. Uh, And actually, promisingly, he did again use this language of of citizens' wealth. So he suggested the creation of a citizens' wealth fund for the UK, and he wanted to seed that by merging the 39,000 public pension funds across the country into one large pot of funding You thought not only would that cut down on overheads in management, uh, but it would also start to give the UK a player that could actually maybe compete with China and Norway and the likes of these other big sovereign funds that the UK kept turning to and saying, can you please invest in our infrastructure? Perhaps we could uh, do it for ourselves. Uh, The the Labor Party had suggested that we could reform the investment mandate of the uh, £8.6 billion crown estate. That's the estate owned by the royal family. It's a very limited um, investment mandate and they suggested that it could invest in a whole array of different assets to help generate more returns and then morph it into a sovereign wealth fund. And I've also mentioned earlier obviously Stuart Lansley's suggestion that we could tax the finance industry, Um, but a very new one and one that's currently under consultation is the proposal for a shale wealth fund. Now can put aside for a second the very tricky and thorny issue of uh, whether we should actually be fracking at all and whether we want proceeds from shale. But if that goes ahead, there is relatively promising language coming out of the government at the moment about how any proceeds that come from that should actually be used uh, to set up a sovereign wealth fund or a shale wealth fund in this case, And the returns from that fund must be redirected to the local communities or the regions that are uh, located around where the fracking is happening. And right now there's consultation going on in Parliament about exactly how we should best distribute the benefits of that. Finally, we have some international proposals as well. Um, Quite promising, I think, for a lot of governments, we could look to things called public commercial assets. This is not financial assets like sovereign wealth funds, but all the other stuff that governments own. If we want to try and... um, If we're happy to sell those off and convert them into a financial asset, we could use that to seed a sovereign fund. And apparently, according to two Swedish economists, uh, there's up to $75 trillion worth of these assets in government portfolios around the globe. A lot of the time, though, governments don't even know exactly what they own. There's a raft of other suggestions here, and, um, including new resource discoveries, which is always nice mana from heaven, um, the possibility of bond issuance, so debt finance, sovereign funds, uh, and also privatisation of assets um, that, that we sell off and try and capture in windfalls. Uh, but I think I'll leave it there and we can get into the meat of some of those proposals in the discussion.
0: Thanks very much, Angela. That's a fascinating talk and also a fascinating book, *Citizens' Wealth*. Um, I guess it would be good to begin with a fairly straightforward and maybe basic question. In your talk and also what you've laid out in your book is that we've been talking about making the case for sovereign wealth funds for years, going back to Adam Smith's day, 200 odd years ago. And the burning question that's on my mind, presumably on the mind of many people in the audience, is why is it that the UK hasn't established its own sovereign wealth fund today? And In your personal opinion, do you think it's likely that we will in the near future?
1: Yeah, it it is a great question, and um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to know the answer, but I can speculate. So I think the interest in sovereign wealth funds here really started to kick up when we noticed that Norway, who also had the same funding source as the UK from its North Sea Oil and Gas revenues, had this enormous sovereign wealth fund that turned out to be the biggest in the world. It's currently got about $850 billion uh, in it. That fund was only set up in, or well, actually set up in 1990, but only seeded for the first time in 1996, and really became enormous in the last decade or so. So I, I think it was around that time that it really shone a mirror up in the UK, and particularly when the Norwegian fund started looking at investments in the UK and shopping centres in Sheffield and we said, hang on a second, why why have they got this wonderful tangible pot of North Sea oil and gas proceeds and and Britain doesn't? So people have been mentioning it for more than 200 years but I think that real contrast has only been in place for for 20 with Norway. The other factor is that North Sea oil and gas revenues are a complicated touchy area because uh, most of them are located up near Scotland. Uh, and there's ongoing discussions and has been for a long time over whether this is actually truly Scotland's oil or whether it should be considered the UK's oil. And I think given the politics around devolution, uh, it would have been sensitive maybe to take those proceeds and establish a, a UK-wide fund. So that, that I don't know that for sure, but we could speculate that might have been part of the problem. Um, but I think now, as we look towards sort of the next 10, 20, 50 years in the UK. We've missed the opportunity a little bit with those North Sea oil and gas revenues. Um, but there are these other options for seeding a fund that I mentioned, a couple of the proposals there for the UK. Uh, and the Shale Wealth Fund is, if you want to go down that path, is actually looking like a real option in terms of there is a proposal... $1 billion will go into that fund and there's a serious commitment, it seems, on behalf of the government to try to distribute some of its proceeds to the local and regional communities.
0: And just on that, uh, that point of the shale wealth fund idea, so I think the original proposal that the government set out was that some of the money that came from the shale gas and went into that shale fund would, would eventually de- be distributed to the councils and community groups. And I think Theresa May stepped in last month and said actually we should be paying more money directly to citizens akin to the Alaskan model, yep. what would you do? If you, if you were an advisor to Theresa May, what would, you, what would you say? That she should continue down that route or whether she should divert to the original proposal?
1: I would say that she should ask the citizens. Right. So uh, <laughs> I think it is quite promising, uh, this, this consultation, and at least the, the language in the, the, the policy documents around it suggests that there is openness uh, on behalf of the government to really try to understand what benefits citizens want. Uh, So there's a debate going on about whether local communities should be the primary recipients of this benefit um, versus regional and let there be a sort of trickle-up effect coming from the local community to the region or vice versa. Uh, There's a number of suggestions about how you can distribute proceeds from these um, projects to communities. I think that that's quite a degree of openness on exactly how you would do that. So I think the first step is, sure, Theresa May can put that on the table, but actually ask the citizens as they're planning to do in public consultations and, and try to get a sense of what people genuinely consider benefit.
0: Yeah, and very relevant to our Citizens' Economic Council, which is in that space of mm-hmm. public deliberation. A final question before I open it up to the audience. Now, we tend to think of sovereign wealth funds as playing an economic function, trying to make nations richer, trying to manage wealth more fairly. But to what extent do you think that they can play another function which is actually to foster togetherness and a sense of belonging in a nation? And I'm thinking, again, to the Alaskan model, and I think in your book, what you do is you, you suggest that the Alaskans, they have a strong relationship to their wealth fund. Actually, they derive a sense of citizenship almost from it.
1: Exactly right. Yeah, I, I think you don't need to have a sense of togetherness pre-existing to set these funds up because we, we see them in all manner of societies, as, as I mentioned, um, and you see them in countries with quite high degrees of inequality, um, and you don't necessarily see them always in countries with high degrees of solidarity and low inequality. So if that was the case, we'd expect to see all of the Nordics having such funds, but it's only really Norway that that has a proper sovereign wealth fund. So it doesn't need to pre-exist, but it definitely can help foster it and cultivate it once it's established. So yes, Alaska is a great example. Um, perhaps a good test of whether the fund had created a sort of constituency and a community around it was... Um, Alaskans were asked several years ago whether, since this was their money and since they all have a sort of individual claim on these collective resources, would they actually just prefer to abolish the fund and each take their per capita share, which at the time amounted to about $64,000 each mm-hmm. Um, So we might expect that everyone would say, woohoo, yes, I'll take that, thanks very much. Um, But surprisingly and overwhelmingly, Alaskans said, absolutely not, this fund is set up to help transfer assets to the future generations. But yes, I still want my dividend as I take it each year, I want that share and I want that to continue in perpetuity. But I also very much see it as a sense of um, a citizenship right. It wasn't just an individual right. It was by virtue of living in Alaska, being in Alaska, and, continue, and participating in that community that people felt they had a claim to those assets. So that's quite promising, I think, for, uh, for the dividend scheme, that it can yeah. actually cultivate a sense of togetherness and community around these funds.
0: Absolutely. OK, I think we've got some time for questions. So let's take two at a time. Uh, Jeremy Kaplan, I'm intrigued by how far up or down you go in devolution. You mentioned Scotland and the oil. But in theory, you could say the same thing could apply to London, where London (coughs) says, I don't tax people anymore, but I I identify a unique property of London being the financial services sector, and I just tax them 1% or whatever, and that belongs to Londoners rather than the rest of the country. So as a mechanism for generating income to be invested in something... How do you? How far up do you go down, up or down, in dev- devolving where the money comes from and who it benefits? Uh, David Pooley, I'm a fellow. Um, I'm interested in your opinion as to whether you can lump these um, wealth funds together, because surely they're completely different. Some, like Norway, are truly arm's length, and others, like China, are obviously an arm of the state.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a very good point, and. Um, I think there's a lot of potential maybe post-Brexit as well in the UK to have all sorts of level of of devolved funding and perhaps very localised sovereign wealth funds. There is actually um, a study that's being conducted at the moment at City University looking into the potential for council level um, sovereign wealth funds within the UK. I think the short answer is um, anywhere that you have public asset ownership, you have potential for these funds. So, if you have local-level government and then state-level government or provincial-level government and then national-level government, you have governments owning assets. They can manage them in a way where they invest those for a return, and that can create seed capital and a revenue stream for the sovereign funds. So I don't think that they're even necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, And we've actually seen that. um, In the US, there are nine sovereign funds at sub-national, at state level in the US, but there's a debate going on about whether there should be a federal-level fund established. Uh, We see it in the United Arab Emirates where there's a number of different um, emirate-level funds and then some at the UAE level. I think council-level funds are a new concept, but it'll be really interesting to see what happens with um, the pilot study that's going on here. Um, And on the second question about um, can we lump them all together... Absolutely not in terms of governance models. You're you're quite right. Where we can link them is in that defining characteristic of them as owning wealth that is ultimately public wealth and trying to manage it for a return. The institutional arrangements that states then use to do that are vastly different, and some of them, as you say, are much more arm's length, some of them are much more closely affiliated to the state. The best practice ones tend to have an arm's-length model and tend to try to insulate the funds from politicisation and interference from government. But I argue in the book that that has to be balanced with the need for citizens to actually understand what those funds are doing and to try to exert some sort of influence and control over the funds. So I think they do all have a a shared characteristic. They are are designed along different models. They should be largely arm's-length. That's best practice, but not so arm's-length that we don't actually know what they're doing.
0: Do you think the the growing interest is is as a result of a sort of crisis of representative democracy, uh, mistrust of existing governments? I I notice that um, quite often privatisation comes up on the charts as a method of seeding these funds. But... Those assets that are privatised, some might argue, already belong to the citizens. So it's like me selling your car and giving you a bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that question and the question about representative democracy and whether we're taking an interest in sovereign wealth funds because I have a feeling that sovereign, uh, sorry, representative democracy isn't working for us.
1: Yeah, I ab- absolutely think that's part of it. It's not only their explosive growth and how quickly their assets under management have have exploded over the last few years, but there are also deep questions now about whether governments in our states are actually serving the purposes that we want them to. And as inequality, I think, becomes more and more of a pressing issue for citizens globally, we are questioning exactly how governments are managing those assets. So I absolutely think those those two things are linked. What I would want to do is say that with sovereign funds, because they often sit outside the traditional apparatus of state agencies and they haven't always been as transparent as we would like them to, and they are huge, vast pots of money, is it enough that we entrust their stewardship to representative democracy and our political representatives? Is that going to be sufficient for us to really feel like we are getting... Proper benefit from them and, and control over them. So yeah, I think we should actually exploit this political, these political conditions to question what we want them to do. Will it weaken it further? Though? I don't think it, any move towards interrogating what's being done with our public assets and how they're managed would weaken government. I think that the more that you actually demand of your government and the more that you expect it to actually speak properly to your interests and hold it to account, that's ultimately going to strengthen it. Um, And as for the question about privatisation of assets, aren't they already our assets? Um, Absolutely. And that's why we can think about them as a, a funding source. We need then to debate do we want to actually sell off those assets? It might not be the case that a particular asset is a good candidate for conversion into a financial asset. So, for instance, in the UK, just a week ago, um, there was a a move uh, to sell off the land registry uh, in the UK, which is something that we, the the citizens, own, and that was blocked. Uh, We might deem that there's a whole array of assets that we don't think are appropriate for sale and conversion into financial assets. But if we do do that... uh, One benefit that comes from it is taking perhaps an asset that's not getting as good a return on it in current form and putting it into financial form and then trying to generate a bigger return over time that we can transfer to future generations. But you have to debate that asset by asset, that you you can't make a blanket statement.
0: Before we open up to more questions, can I just do a show of hands? Does anyone think that sovereign wealth funds are a bad idea? General consensus. Friendly audience, Finally. <laughs> yeah. Unity. Um, so, uh, do anyone have any more questions? They want to, there's a gentleman there and a lady over here. How do the Norwegians distribute the, their fund? Um, Alec Robertson Fellow, um, have you any comment on the currency of the fund? Do you use the, the national currency of a country or the dollar as an res- na- international reserve or gold? Is there any comment you might like make the, on that? What examples are there of sovereign wealth funds tackling inequality? What's the best sort of practice? Okay, so how how does the Norwegian fund distribute its dividends? A question about currency and a question about examples of how uh, sovereign wealth funds tackle inequality.
1: Mm -hmm. So the Norwegian fund, it's doesn't do the Alaska approach of giving dividends directly to citizens, but it does have a fiscal spending rule that says every year the fund has to transfer up to 4% of the value of the fund back into the budget. So in the minds of the government and a lot of the managers of the fund, that counts as the fund transferring back some of its returns to citizens. Now, you can then debate, is that a direct enough transfer? Because what happens then when it's in the government budget? What if Norwegian politicians just raise salaries of Norwegian politicians with all that extra money? Mm. Or they spend it on um, a very nice new opera house and maybe not everyone Mm. thinks that's the fairest distribution of those um, proceeds. So it is a distribution, but it's not as direct as the Alaska model. Um, The question on currency, I mean, typically the funds are... Seated in the local currency, the, the national currency of the sponsor community, but then depending on the macroeconomic circumstances of, of that sponsor community, they will then decide, okay, actually we need to manage our currency exchange risk, we're going to hold most of these assets in US dollars. Um, or we're particularly worried about currency fluctuations in general, so we're going to actually have a huge store of gold, Um, and that has become an increasing concern, actually, for a lot of sovereign funds. But that's, I think, an issue that depends entirely on the macroeconomic backdrop. So a big problem for a lot of these sovereign funds is when they're set up in resource-dependent economies where it's largely one resource that is a huge component of of the public finances, there's a risk of the fund overheating the economy. Uh, And so they're typically mandated to then invest offshore and and push a lot of those assets offshore. Um, So I think it it just depends. Not every fund would would have that particular challenge if it's in an economy that isn't so dependent on one particular resource. Uh, And And there's a question about inequality... The inequality question, yeah. So I think most funds aren't doing nearly as much as they could is the short answer, but there are two ways in which they can really tackle inequality. Um, One of them is the idea that Stuart Lansley talked about. So the actual um, creation of the fund could come from um, trying to collectivise returns more on capital. So if we want to start to tax... Share ownership, or we want to ask companies to dilute shareholdings and create issue more shares to seed a fund. Well, that in itself would be an egalitarian redistribution already of, of private capital. Um, then the other way that they can do this is through funding schemes that we consider to be inequality ameliorating. So, if we think that maybe this might be a good funding source for a basic income or a citizens' income, if we're committed to that ideal, and there are a number of thinkers that are connecting those two. That would be another way. Uh, I should actually mention, of course, the third way that they do tackle inequality is intergenerational inequality. So once you set up these funds, if you, if you do preserve the wealth and you make a little bit of a return on it, then you are transferring wealth between generations. So it's got that I- intergenerational inequality combative effect.
0: Thank you very much, um, everyone, for coming. Thanks for your brilliant questions. But it just leaves me to thank Angela once again for coming along today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the RSA.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.